Well, good morning. I'm Julie Coleman. I'm part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel, and we are continuing this morning in our series in Genesis. We've been kind of covering this in parts, uh, and this season, this winter season, we are looking at the life of Joseph, which takes up quite a bit of space um, at the end of Genesis, starting in verse 37. So I want to start by telling you a story this morning of a young guy. His name is Patrick. He lived some centuries ago um, in, in a seaside town in England. He was from a very deeply religious family. His grandfather was a priest. His father was a deacon in the church. But as a teenager, Patrick remained uncommitted in his heart to God. Well, one fateful day, when Patrick was 16 years old, Irish pirates raided his hometown. And he was taken captive, and he was brought to Ireland and forced into hard labor. They made him become a shepherd. He lived year-round in the elements, and his life was marked by hunger and freezing temperatures and pain. But during those terrible years, Patrick had a spiritual awakening, and he later wrote that the Lord used that time of suffering to convict him of his sins, and he began to seek God because of it. And after much time in prayer, he finally wholeheartedly embraced Christianity. Well, after six years of being in a captivity, God did intervene. And Patrick heard a voice in the night telling him that he would go home soon. And then another night, he heard a second time a voice telling him his ship was ready. So what he did was flee his master, and he traveled 200 miles to find a ship which was headed toward home. And he persuaded a captain to take him with him. After three days' sail, the sh ship landed on the shores of England, and the entire crew and Patrick left the boat together and uh, walked 28 days in the wilderness. And at that time and during that time, Patrick led all of the crew and captain to know the Lord as their Savior. And eventually, Patrick was able to find his way home to his family. Well, I tell you this story because maybe you have some obstacles in your life this morning. Maybe you have people or circumstances that are holding you captive. Sometimes it can seem like people or circumstances have a lot of power in our lives, especially when their intentions toward us are not good and against us. And it can be easy to feel like our enemies are the ones in control. The hero of our series, Joseph, had that same kind of experience, but his enemies were his own brothers who were out to take him out. Joseph's re story really started when God called his great-grandfather Abraham. God had promised that Abraham's descendants would become a great nation and a blessing to all the other nations. Um, and he continued reaffirming his commitment to the family line with a dream with each subsequent generation. First Isaac, then Jacob, and finally Joseph. And last week, Joseph's story was introduced. We saw how God gave Joseph two dreams that depicted the future of his generation, of he and his brothers. Dreams were how God communicated with his, pro his promises to each generation and had been doing so. So these two dreams were the sign for Joseph and his brothers. But we saw last week how his brothers and even his father, who rece had received himself a dream, a lot of time ago, were offended by the dreams 
because the content of those dreams gave an unmistakable message that the brothers and the mother and father would all bow down to Joseph. And that was unthinkable. We also learned very much about the uh, dysfunctional family dynamics that were at play here in this story. You've got the wives. There were four of them, uh, came to uh, Jacob at different times, had totally different backgrounds. Two of them were sisters, and two of them were handmaids of the sisters. They were all pagan. They had all started their lives, raised in a pagan home, and had their gods. And uh, you wonder, could some of those beliefs, the things they were raised with, you know how you carry baggage from things, could that have had an influence on their faith and what they believed about God? Um, and it's just interesting that, that they had their household idols, and finally, later in, in, before this time, but later in Jacob's life, he brings his wives, and they finally bury the idols. Finally. But the boys were already adults. So they had been raised with those things too. So just to give you an idea of the kind of, of conflicting information they might have been getting as boys. Jacob uh, had great favoritism toward Joseph because he was the son of the woman, the one wife he really loved. He always so, showed preference, uh, protecting them the most. It's very interesting as you see him when he approaches his brother Esau. He did nothing to protect his daughter Dinah, who was raped by a neighboring prince. And, um, and his reply was, after his brothers uh, went in and, and wreaked revenge, that he said, you brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land. And they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? And you can almost feel the frustration of those brothers to their father's response, his apathy toward what had happened to that, that young girl. Now, here in 37, it says that Jacob loved Israel... Uh, Israel loved Jacob more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. Probably the best-known part of the Joseph story, right? That multi-colored coat. But if he was interested in family unity, uh, this never would have happened. He was all out for one. So what was the result then? His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers and so they hated him. And they could not speak to him on friendly terms. And uh, after he told them his dreams, they hated him even more. So we're going to begin our portion of scripture today as Joseph's older brothers leave the family compound with the flocks and they go in search of good grazing ground. Well, after a while, they've been gone for quite some time, Jacob sends Joseph off to check on them it takes them some time to locate him because they had said they'd gone to one city, but there wasn't enough grazing land there, so they moved further away from home. But he did find them. Uh, here's a map of his trip. He left Hebron, and the Dead Sea is just below Hebron. You can see where Jerusalem is to give you kind of a bearing there. Um, Joppa's along the Mediterranean Sea, just to kind of give you a flavor for the land. But they went up. Uh, he went up through Bethel. Uh, and, and went to Shechem, and we know this route because there was a road that traveled along the side of a mountain range, and that's what he would have used. And then they had left Shechem and went to Dothan, and so it was quite a, a journey that he took. It was 62 miles. That's a long, a long journey to take on foot, and, um, but he did it. He went all the way there, and he finally arrived in Dothan where they were and finds them. So that's where we're picking up our story, and we're going to look at Genesis 70, 37, excuse me, 18 to 20. 
When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say, a beast devoured him. Then let us see what becomes of his dreams. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this passage of Joseph and the richness of the things that are in it that you have laid there for us to discover. And we just ask now that you would use your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts as we look at these things and that we might love you even more. And when we're finished, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I want to stop right there in the story. I'm going to read a little more later on. But look what they said. Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him, and then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Noticing a little theme here, the dream part? Joseph had been given two dreams, and the brothers had refused to accept them. Yes, they were rejecting Joseph, but they were rejecting something greater. It was much more serious than hating their little brother, because who were the dreams from? God! So who were they rejecting? God! the revealed plans of God, the promises of God. But they didn't like where God was going. They were not interested in what God had to say. They were going to ignore what God had revealed and rewrite their own future. So they set out to circumvent the very plans and purposes of God. Well, first of all, good luck with that one. God will not be mocked. So we continue on. Uh, with verses 21 to 24. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that's in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Well, the one brother was a voice of reason, wasn't he? The only one with a conscience that at least thought to spare Joseph's life. They threw him down into this empty well and then sat down and had a nice lunch. As we read on, they sat down to have a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus, they brought Joseph into Egypt. So Joseph finds himself into captivity, headed toward the great Egyptian empire. And in order to explain Joseph's absence, the brothers concoct this story uh, about an animal that had hurt their brother and killed him. And then they would take his multicolored tunic, the one they hated so much, dipped it into goat's blood, and they brought it to Jacob, who grieved heavily. And this is what the narrator concludes in verse 36. Meanwhile, 
the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. The brothers assume they got away with it. The father accepted their story with terrible grief, but for all intents and purposes, it was over. They'll never see the Midianites again, that traveling band of traders. Looks like their tracks are covered. They did it. The perfect murder, or slave sale. (laughs) And they are in the clear, for now, for now. Well, I hope you're as outraged as I am when, I, when I, you read this story because Joseph's own flesh and blood seeking to destroy him? I mean, really. Now, in addition to my daughter, Melanie, who led worship this morning, I raised three boys. That's not them, but it's a depiction of what I'm about to tell you. Three boys, and I saw firsthand how brother rivalry could affect a brother-sibling relationship. One time, one of my sons came home. It was playing out in the neighborhood. And he came in and he said, Mom... Um, so-and-so was uh, saying bad things to Adam and making fun of him. And I said, well, did you stick up for your brother and tell him to stop? And Daniel kind of looked at me blankly and said, why would I do that? (laughs) Steve and I figured out we had some work to do when we heard that one. My boys had their bad moments, but in the end, blood always won over rivalry. And I can't even imagine the kind of strong emotion that was in Joseph's brothers, in that family that was behind this horrendous act. What they did goes well beyond what any of us would consider normal. Well, why did they go to such an extreme? Why not live and let live? Because Joseph was a threat to them. He was threatening them. They thought Joseph was making a claim that he would be head of the family. He was 11 out of 12 sons, and yet he was saying they would be bowing down to him. And there's something else in the family history that we need to consider. Jacob, their father, had taken the birthright from his older brother, and, and now here's Joseph claiming kind of the same thing. And I, I wonder, were they wondering, would they end up like their uncle Esau? Or their uncle Ishmael, back in Isaac's day, out in the cold, losing their place in the family line. The dreams foretold of this day where they were going to bow down to him like servants to a king. They were threatened, and they were having none of it. A lot of us react like that when a threat comes. We stand up and we we, uh, stick up for ourselves. As I studied this passage, I was reminded of another instance of an older brother who acted in unconscionable ways. Jesus told a parable of an older brother who angrily rejected his father's decision. The older brother was a metaphor for the Jewish leadership in the parable of the lost son, or as we like to refer to it as, the prodigal son. Jesus was telling this parable because he wanted to get across to the Jewish leadership that they were working against the purposes of God in what they were saying. The more I thought about them, the more I saw these two groups, Joseph's brothers and the the big brothers in that parable, the the Pharisees, scribes, and the priests, were both very much had things in common. Now stick with me, because in a lot of of places, and, and you'll see it often, and we will bring this up eventually, I'm sure, 
But the story of Joseph, Joseph's life, is considered what we would call a foretelling or even a type of the life of Christ. And you've probably heard that maybe before, where there's so many things about Joseph's life that, you know, was also repeated in a bigger scale in the life of Jesus. And one of the things that's the same about those two stories is these brothers and the Pharisees that were following around harassing Jesus the whole time he was on the earth preaching and teaching and healing. So it doesn't surprise me that we would find similarities in the life of Jesus um, supporting characters as well. So I want, let's take a look at a couple of things that I saw that they had in common. First, they both sought to discredit. Joseph's brothers saw a clear supernatural revelation, but they refused to, he refused to acknowledge it as from God. Jesus had the same problem with the Jewish leaders. They saw miracles. They saw things that couldn't have happened without the power of God, and yet they still did not validate Jesus' words, and they sought to discredit him. This is what they would say. The Son of Man has come, Jesus said this about them, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And when Jesus exercised demons, the Pharisees said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul and the ruler of demons. So yes, they were both discrediting the heroes in our story. Second, both groups acted in rebellion toward God's plan. Joseph's brothers um, were in rebellion against the plan of God by taking matters into their own hands and trying to circumvent what God had told them was going to happen. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, John writes this, Therefore, the chief priests and Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Talk about a self-agenda. There it was, and they were going to destroy Jesus. Both Joseph's brothers and the uh, Jewish leaders both plotted murder. Joseph's brothers plotted murder against their brother, and the leaders of Jesus' day had the same idea. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. Both stories involve silver for betrayal. Joseph's brothers made 20, made 20 shekels of silver when they sold their brother, and Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. They both lied to cover up their crime. Joseph's brothers dipped his coat to use as evidence that he had been mauled by an animal. When soldiers guarding the tomb reported to the chief priest that an angel had come and rolled away the stone and sat on it, it says in Matthew, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say, here comes the lie, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Liars, both groups. And both groups thought they had gotten away with it. The father believed their the brother's story. Joseph's brothers thought they'd gotten away with it. So did the Jewish leaders, who, after the crucifixion, brushed their hands off and got back to business as usual. Problem solved. But in the end, and this is the most amazing part of both stories, God used their rebellion and actions to accomplish the very plans they were trying to circumvent. The irony in this is so beautiful. Joseph broke that news to his brother years later when he saw him again. He said, as for you, you meant evil for me, against me, 
but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result. And that would be that he was ruling in Egypt and could provide for the family's needs. God used the actions of the brothers to do that. And Peter said the same to the Jewish leaders in Acts. He said, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself known, know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan of God and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. God had always planned for Jesus to be crucified. Revelation calls Christ the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. These things that happened on Passion Week and before, they were not, no surprise to God. God was using those things to orchestrate the very thing. Jesus came to die. It was always in the plan. And the Pharisees, in their determination to foil the plans of God, to not be in God's program, rather than keeping God's plans from coming to the pass, they were actually the very means by which God uh, used that Jesus was sentenced to die. Their actions did the opposite of what they intended them to do. Well, the same with Joseph's brothers. In their determination to destroy the plans of God, they became the actual catalyst when Joseph was brought down to Egypt. It had been God's plan all along that Joseph would go there and the family would follow. God had told their great-grandfather Abraham many years before this, know for certain, Abraham, that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And then in the fourth generation, they'll return here. Things were ironically going just as God had planned, exactly as he had promised. And they, in their rebellious, evil actions, had actually set the plans into motion. You have to love the irony. So, what? What's the value of this story for us today? How does it help us? Well, God is God. He never changes. And right now, he has his plans in place. He knows what and when he's going to accomplish. And it's foolishness to think that anyone or anyone could foil the plans of God. Like he told the prophet Habakkuk, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets of stone that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Habakkuk, at the time, was concerned about what he was seeing in his society. There was oppression of the poor. There was lack of integrity among the leaders and priests. And he told God, why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. The law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous Therefore, justice comes out perverted. And he later asked God, why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Sometimes it really does seem like evil is winning. And we're all doomed. But then there's God. And he told Jeremiah, behold, I am the Lord 
the God of all flesh, is anything too difficult for me? Of course there's nothing that can thwart God and his purposes. Of course. Yet men try. It's in our very nature to do so. We, were, we are enemies of God before Christ. But in the end, it's absolutely impossible to thwart God's plan. God will always be victorious. You can count on it. Paul tells us in Romans that this, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What then should we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Who can be against us? God is for us, and he's going to use these things for good. We may not receive the ending that we pray for when evil works to bring us down. We may not get to see the good he does with the bad that we've experienced. Not in this life anyway. But someday we will get to see God's glorious tapestry revealed. We'll note all the intervention he did in the process of our lives and see the irony of his ways when he used the bad and the ugly to make his plans and purposes come to pass. Well, in conclusion, I want to tell you the rest of the story about that young man named Patrick, kidnapped by pirates and pressed into slavery. After months back home, he was recuperating and seeking direction for his future plans. Patrick strongly felt led to go back to Ireland. He knew that God had brought him there for a reason, and he was burdened to share Christ with that lost nation. History tells us that as he preached, Thousands were saved. Revival broke out among the pagan people. Lives were changed, and many came to know Christ as Savior. Now, we know that young man today as St. Patrick, recognized as a saint in the Catholic Church for his missionary efforts. But God used the evil actions of a band of cutthroat pirates to bring the gospel message to a land that needed to hear it. There is nothing God can't use for his purposes. He takes the worst and somehow miraculously redeems it. What's evil, he'll somehow use for good. What happened with Joseph's brothers is really a message of hope for us all because God will not be stopped. I'm going to leave you with this quote by biblical scholar Bruce Waltke. This is the message of hope for the church and for the growth of the kingdom of God ultimately depends on God's sovereign grace not on human faithfulness. God's promise of hope overrides all of this failure, ultimately using fallible people to accomplish his good work. When we are weak, he can use us. When others threaten our sense of well-being, he is not thwarted. Nothing can stop him, and we can trust him in it all.